Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Let's start with who you are. You are a Indiana state representative, and you're out of District 7. And can you talk a little bit about your journey of getting into politics and, you know, your background and things like that? I would appreciate that if you would do that before we get started. Sure. Yeah. Thank you uh, for having me. And uh, Jake Teshka, House District 7, which uh, encompasses uh, most of of geographically St. Joe County, uh, in the northern part of the state on the border with Michigan. And I've got a little piece of LaPorte County and a little piece of Marshall County as well. Uh, and and my journey, really, uh, I took an interest in politics early on. Uh, I think I was knocking on doors for our congressional candidate uh, up here uh, when I was 14 and, and uh, really took an interest in getting involved in the political process as a way to affect change in my community, to uh, impact uh, what's going on around me. And so I actually went to college uh, and was uh, geared up, said, I'm going to go get my degree in political science. I don't know how many kids like you know, were itching to get their degree in political science. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah right. At, at that age, and we're so sure of it, right, that I didn't change or anything like that. Uh, and the, the initial plan was to go to law school. That didn't happen. I did do an internship at the state house while I was in college and then came out of that and, and worked on campaigns and, and, uh, worked for different causes as an advocacy, you know, campaigns and those sorts of things. And then my wife, uh, when I met my wife, she said, you got to get a real job, right? So, so, <laughs> so made my way out of politics and thought that was great. That was a great experience. It was something I was able to do while I was younger and, and now it's time to get a big boy job. And so uh, and, and went into the private sector thinking that all of that was behind us. And then uh, a little later on, I was approached uh, when we had a, a council person, city council person here in South Bend that was retiring. And they said, hey, we think you'd be great for it. And, you know, would you be willing to to take a look at it? And so my wife and I were people of faith. So we we prayed about it. We thought about it and uh, decided that it was something that we should lean into to, to help our community. And uh, and then one thing led to another. And, and, and then we were approached about running for this seat. This one was tougher. Uh, the state uh, the state representative seat. We've got two little kids at home and it's a lot of time away from the family, yeah. uh, specifically during session. Uh, and so, you know, we said no probably for 10 months to this until we finally, uh, you know, we, we uh, spend a couple of weeks and again in prayer and, and just kind of talking and thinking about this and came out the other side, uh, believing that it was something that we were called to do. So, uh, so here we are. Awesome. Tell me about your kids. How old are they? I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old boy. Uh, our oh boy gosh. is older and our girl's the youngest. Yeah. So I have a, t- a 10-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. So okay. relatively close to where you're at. Yeah. They, they keep us hopping. Yeah. it's Well, they keep me a lot of hopping, so I can't <laughs> imagine how that works for you guys. But so let's talk before we get into legislation. I want to talk just general right now. The mood the feeling I am, if you would have asked me before COVID, I would have been a staunch Republican, super conservative, back the blue. I was a very loyal citizen to my party. 
Post-COVID, I am not anymore. I have so much disdain for the political class at this point after what happened over the course of the last three years. And I think, I, I don't know that my feelings are shared, but the amount of liberty that was sacrificed over the course of the last three years is is almost like, I, I don't know that we can get it back at this point. I'm really frustrated by that. And I wonder how that feels for you guys on the other side of that. Like, are you guys seeing, because I'm seeing some of the legislation that's coming out of the state of Indiana, and it feels like you guys are like, yeah, the executive overreached. We're trying to put some of this in check. We're trying to do more for our citizens. That's why I still live here, because I believe that Indiana is a fairly free, liberty-minded state. Can you talk to me a little bit about what those conversations look like on your side of things as far as what you're hearing from your constituents and how you feel about things as they've transpired over the last couple years. Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, I think you're, you know, you're spot on that uh, specifically in my caucus and the, in the house Republican side of things uh, there's a lot of frustration with uh, the, the way things were handled over the last couple of years. A lot of my colleagues, I mean, we, we talk about how, just how painful it was sitting through 2020 and uh, having the governor not call us back into special session, you know, at, at any point uh, between right. March and um, and then January of the next year, and and so that's where you saw things like in 2021 House Bill 1123, which was our attempt to to say, hey, hey, the, the legislature, uh, if there's a state of emergency, can call itself back into session, right? And you see that, you know, saw that work through the courts uh, and, and be litigated. The governor sued us on that. And you'll see more and more of this type of legislation. Last year, Representative Bartels had, um, in 2022, House Bill 1100, which was agency oversight. Um, and that bill ended up <clears throat> failing along the process. I stuck pieces of it in my uh, my House Bill uh, 1211, which was originally uh, just a, a really simple, easy blockchain bill. Like, this is how we're going to treat uh, blockchain as a state. But but uh, I thought it was really important to get some of that agency oversight in there that we essentially said that uh, agencies can't make emergency rules without having some other authority check it. Right. And, and to say right. uh, there's got to be some electoral accountability here. We've got a, an administrative state uh, that is working behind the scenes uh, and has been. Right? I mean, this has been building up for decades. Right. Where right, yeah. the legislature and other elected officials have slowly over time ceded responsibility to uh, bureaucrats, right? Unelected bureaucrats. And they're not bad people, right? I'm not saying they're bad people. Sure, no. But uh, but at the end of the day, the, but the they're, voters, not they're, they're not that elected. That becomes a non-representative government. And that's Absolutely. a huge issue. Absolutely. And so so I put some of that language into to my bill. Of course, it was one of two bills that got vetoed by the governor last year. Uh, and so we're going to come back for some of that agency oversight uh, stuff this session. But you're spot on that, you know, the, the folks... Uh, in the legislature are listening to constituents who are saying these exact same things, right? We want a voice and you are our voice. And so if, if the legislature is uh, abdicating its responsibility, we've got some issues. Yeah. So let's talk about, it's really interesting. It, it was, it was interesting watching that work through the litigation process and, and watch the checks and balances not operate the way that they should, right? Like the executive authority should never have the ability to just 
issue out an edict and everybody has to follow it. There ha- it's not a law. Like you, that is not a law. A law goes through the Congress, which you know this. I mean, you're in you're in yeah. politics, but the idea that I, I'm just speaking from my personal experience. So I'm in Floyd County. I'm in District Nine, and we had a really hard time with our school board. Uh, superintendent specifically, and our the guy who oversees our health director, like our health department director, mm-hmm. the the language that was coming out as justification for things like uh, kicking kids out of school, making them wear masks, all that kind of stuff, the numbers weren't supported by anything. It was just go do it because we said so. And now you have situations where like my son has issues with his speech. He's three years old because all of his teachers had to wear masks. So he didn't get the visual representation of words and stuff. He's been delayed in a lot of things. That's super frustrating as a parent. And I wonder like, where's that recourse? Like, where do we go back and say, hey, here's the the things that you messed up on. Here's the things that happened to us. There's no recourse there for the citizens. There's nothing where we can say, okay, this shouldn't happen anymore ever again. You should never have this kind of power again. Absolutely. And it's, it's frustrating. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to like sit here and no, no. you. It's not your. <laughs> so it's uh, completely enabled by the state, right? So, so title 16 gives the Indiana department of health, this really broad authority to, take what it calls uh, mitigation measures, right? To a list of communicable communicable diseases that uh, at this point, only the Indiana Department of Health can add to, right? And so uh, it's interesting when I talk to some folks in my area, my district, even some of my my rural, you know, smaller school districts that, you know, the superintendent would call and say, Jake, you know, we've held out as long as we can. We really want, we don't want to do the mask thing. We don't want to, but, but the State Department of Health has tied our hands, right? And so we've got, you know, one of my districts, it's a, it's a smaller district, under 2,000 kids. And at one point, right, because the health department said, we don't have to do masks. But if you don't, or if you, if you do masks, uh, the radius for which you've got a, uh, you've got a, a contact and quarantine folks, right, if somebody's sick, uh, goes from six feet to three feet. And this specific superintendent said, I don't know how I don't do that, Jake, because right now I've got 500 kids sitting at home, right? right. And of them, and I said, I, I asked them this question. I said, of those, how many of them are actually sick, right? Virtually right. none, virtually hmm. none, right? But they were close contacted, so they have to stay home for, you know, whatever the quarantine period is. And he said, we've got to have these kids in school and in person. And so, so again, I, I think a lot of hands were tied, and that was from the Indiana Department of Health and the power that they've got under Title 16. And we're starting to take stabs at that. I've got a bill this year, House Bill 1083. It's about student immunizations. And so essentially what it says is that uh, only the General Assembly will be able to add um, to the list of diseases uh, which require a student immunization. And so, again, just going back to the theme of electoral accountability, right? It doesn't mean that we're not right. going to listen to the health department or experts on you know on both sides of the issue. But at the end of the day, the voters and the citizens uh, in Indiana deserve somebody that can be held accountable and You're that right. would be us, right? And so, sure. so uh, that's, I think, something you'll see continue as we, as we move forward. Awesome. Okay. 
Let's get into this marijuana legislation that you have introduced and written. I read the bill last night. It's hard to muster through. <laughs> you put you to sleep, I bet. <laughs> no, it didn't put me to sleep. I actually like reading legislation, which is nerdy, but I am really curious because the way that you guys established this bill was not to legalize marijuana in the state of Indiana. It was to kind of put the infrastructure in place so that if the federal government decides to legalize marijuana, then Indiana has the mechanisms ready to go for us to be able to do that. That's the way that I understand the bill. Yeah, that's correct. I'm curious as to why you guys went that direction rather than actually just go ahead and and legalizing it. Why did you decide to let the federal government make that decision first? So uh, this becomes a a conversation about uh, my druthers versus political reality, right? Um, Right. So if you look back to my history of since I've been in the House, the bills that I've co-authored or authored, I have always been in favor of at least decriminalization and medical. Um, I have been in favor of adult use. Uh, Looking at what's going on, again, I'm in a border community uh, with Michigan, and so I can go right now. Uh, like eight miles from my house and be at a dispensary. And I guarantee you at this second on, you know, Martin Luther King Day in 2023, uh, over 50% of the lot is filled with uh, Indiana license plates, right? Sure. Uh, these places cluster along the border. We know that Hoosiers are are uh, going across state lines. Um, and so again, I, I would have, uh, especially now, seeing as we're one of only a dozen states at this point that have no um, uh, cannabis program at all, Right. I would have uh, moved to do that. However, uh, last, I guess it was last December, well, not last December, the, the one before, Governor Holcomb said that he would be amenable to looking at a piece of legislation that sets up the infrastructure. Uh, and so that's what my bill does. You know, we, when we look at uh, Indiana, we're, we're unique, which is a great, in a great way, in that we've got a what's called a weak governor system because we can override a veto with a simple majority of both chambers. And so 51 votes in the House, 26 votes in the in the Senate, and you can override a veto. You know, so, so ostensibly, if you get something out the first time, you can, you can pass it again on a veto override. Although I think attitudes kind of shift sometimes, especially when it's a governor of your own party and, and those kinds right. of dynamics are at play. And so, um, so really this bill is a, a a realistic look at how do we get some sort of cannabis reform through both chambers signed by the governor and get it done quickly. Right. And, and, right. and so this was really the, the way to do that. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the infrastructure, the way that you have set it up and how that maybe sets Indiana apart as a state compared to the way that some of the other states are running their cannabis programs? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh, it, coming into this, uh, I'm a very, you know, free market guy, right? And so uh, I wanted to make sure that we don't create another three-tiered system like we do with alcohol, where, uh, you know, you've got all these different special interest groups that you've got to appease from this point into, you know, eternity. Uh, and uh, wanted to make sure that we give Hoosiers a first crack at at this market, right? I've got a hemp farmer in my district. We've got one of the largest CBD uh, processors in the country down in uh, the North Indianapolis area. Uh, we've got folks in CBD stores uh, selling uh, adjacent products all over the state. 
These are all people that are well suited to pivot into this new market if we give them the opportunity to. Uh, but if we don't set up our program right, we're going to see all these multi-state operators, these you know, multi-million slash billion-dollar companies swoop in and 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 you know basically take control of the market. And we want to make sure right. that that didn't happen. And so we kind of veer away from the dispensary model in my bill that that other states like Michigan have gone to. To, and um, we set a set number of, of growers licenses and processor licenses, uh, and those those are changeable by the the Indiana Cannabis Commission that we set up uh, to meet consumer demand. Uh, but ultimately, on the retail side, we set up what's called a, a qualified retailers permit. Uh, and so, instead of doing a a dispensary model where maybe only the well connected and the well healed, right, the folks with a lot of money could actually get into the market. This would allow folks, you know, your average user to to enter into this market and um, and and sell the product. Yeah, I thought that that was really interesting that you guys did it that way to allow. Because it's when you talk about free market for the state, the people who live here to actually benefit from that. I thought that that was really good that you guys did it that way. So it's kind of frustrating for me that we're still so far behind. So the other piece of legislation that I've been looking at in the last few days, the Senate is flirting with the idea of doing away with the Indiana state income tax. And I think it's, if I remember my numbers correctly, I think it was somewhere around $7 billion comes from Indiana state tax revenue. And the question that's being asked is, well, where do we find those dollars? Well, I mean, I can think of a lot of places we could maybe cut some things and we could find a lot of dollars. <laughs> but I know in government, the word cut is not a very favorable word. But from a marijuana perspective, that to me seems a very like easy transition to say, you enter a consumption tax, bring marijuana in. You you have a, a massive influx of cash to help compensate where Indiana taxpayers then don't have their income tax. That's it's a huge deal. Yeah, I think that um, when when we look at this issue, uh, I've been kind of avoiding the um, the revenue argument of it just because the state is so flush sure. with cash, right? And so so that's not a very compelling argument um, in either chamber at this point as to why we should uh, move towards legalization. Uh, and and actually, I'll you know being honest, my bill sets out probably the the lowest tax structure in the country. Uh, and so realistically, you know, to, to so it probably wouldn't bring that much. It in wouldn't, yeah, no, it would it would probably bring in, you know, and even in Michigan, where they've got a fa- fairly heavy tax, right? We're talking $200 million or less per year. So to bridge that $7 billion gap, it's going to take a lot more. Uh, and I would be in favor of where, where can we find to, you know, uh, tighten our belts a little bit sure. in order to do something like that. That's because we're on the same page. But That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so, so, you know, again, one of the things we know, though, too, is that uh, if you overtax, right, if you look at other states um, that, that have cannabis programs that are overtaxed, I'm thinking of California and some others, uh, you're going to have a robust black market still, right? Sure. Because, you know, if, if I can get it for quite a bit less uh, on the street corner than at the actual, you know, regulated counter, uh, I'm going to do that. And so we, we got to make sure that we take a balanced approach to this. Sure. Can you tell me real quick why Holcomb, it, it maybe in conversation or in some of the stuff that he's put out, 
why he's opposed to because when I think of like states' rights, you have many states that are thumbing their nose at the federal government at this point. You have Oklahoma essentially saying we don't have to listen to any federal legislation anymore. Like they're introducing almost like secession at this point. And so I'm curious why he's so hesitant to do anything that's not in line with the federal government, because that's not how we should have been set up in the first place. States shouldn't be looking to the federal government on on how to run themselves. And so I find that odd. And I'm just curious. I try really hard not to be so critical of him, but I am not his biggest fan anymore. So I'm I'm just kind of curious to hear maybe a perspective that's a little bit more gentle than how I feel about him. Let's see if I can be gentle. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I just think it's a, it's a difference. Maybe professional is a better. <laughs> it's a difference in philosophy, right? I think that you know that Governor Holcomb and myself represent two pretty polar opposite ends of of our party. Right. And so, you know, when you look at some of his ideas about the role of government, and if you even listen to his State of the State address um, this past week and listen to a lot of what he talked about, whether it's the Governor's Public Health Commission and-, and He's very uh, authoritarian. I was really disappointed, if I'm being honest with you. Well, I know that uh, at least in my small section of, of legislators, you know, we're, we're sitting there looking at each other uh, like, where is, you know, we're spending all of this money, apparently. Right. And, and that, you know, there's here's 10 points of how government's going to solve everything that, you know, every problem that ills us. And and as a small government conservative, I recognize that the government is so ill equipped to do that. Right. right. Uh, and, and that uh, we would be much better off. Uh, doing what the House had led the charge on uh, in the last year, which is cutting our income taxes deeply, returning to you know returning those dollars back to Hoosier pocketbooks, and allowing them to invest in nonprofits and churches and other you know ways to sure to actual to free market yeah actual free market stuff. And so you know so again I think that his take on this whole cannabis issue is really. I don't know. It's 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 really kind of an enigma, right? Because if you'd say that he's on the more progressive end of our party, you would think, well, maybe he would be for this, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. As you as you see, many progressive Democrats being for this, and this has less and less become a partisan issue, uh, the issue of cannabis. And so, so uh, you know, I think again, he's got a different view of of the structure of how things should be set out. I've heard a lot of arguments, even you know, within some of the legislators who are not necessarily pro-cannabis reform, and they'll say something along the lines of, how would you like it, right, if as a state legislator, we pass a law and counties started to, one by one, the 92 counties in Indiana started to, one by one, decide that they weren't going to follow that law, right? And I say, look, I, I can understand kind of the logic behind that argument, right, argument being that, hey, this is illegal at the federal level and the states are deciding they don't want to do it. However, there's multiple, there's a couple of things I would say back to that. One, 37 other states now are doing this. So if we were the first one, I might give a little bit more credence to that argument. Sure. Mm -hmm. But but there's 37 other states with a with a federal or with a program, and now Kentucky has allowed by executive order, you know, the possession of medical cannabis. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is this: the states created the federal government, right? Just right. as the state created the county government. So the state in this whole grand experiment that we're doing 
should be the one making these decisions, right? Absolutely. I'd say that, 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 that the federal government's prohibition of, of cannabis is extra constitutional, right? It's something that they were not tasked with doing and it should be a state issue. And so, uh, so that's what I would say in, in response to an argument like that. Are you seeing any sort of, I mean, because we control both the House and the Senate right now. Are you seeing any sort of, uh, you guys passed a constitutional carry last year. And I have to wholeheartedly say that if there is any piece of legislation that has come out of the Indiana in the last 10 years, that is my favorite piece of legislation that you guys have passed. Like it makes my heart so unbelievably happy that you guys took into consideration the rights of the citizens of this state. So kudos to you guys for pushing that through. And I really appreciate you. So moving forward, you're starting to see from a federal perspective, a lot of, a a lot of pressure on guns, drugs, but only in certain places. Like you're not seeing it. You don't see them going to Washington. Who's legalized every single drug that you could possibly get. That's not where they're going. They're going into rural America and shutting down, you know, Joe, who has a few marijuana plants in his basement. Like, it's very odd the way that the enforcement looks right now. So I'm curious if Indiana is going to create any sort of like sanctuary similar to what Oklahoma is doing, similar to what Missouri is doing, where they're saying, you know what? federal government, this is not your place. This is not your role. We'll handle it ourselves. Are you, are you guys seeing anything like that in Indiana? Yeah, look, I think that, uh, again, in, in my caucus uh, and in other corners of the state house, you know, maybe the, the attorney general's office, there's a strong desire to push back against a lot of what's going on at the federal level. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about how we do that. You know, is it a law? Is it the attorney general uh, joining on these briefs with other states and and pushing through the courts, um, pushing against the federal government's overreach? Um, But ultimately, I think we all view, uh, I don't want to say we all, but a good chunk of us in the statehouse view our roles uh, as very critically important at this stage in our country's history uh, in that, you know, it's it's on us ultimately as state legislators. Uh, and I think more and more people are, are kind of uh, waking up to that. Right. And this is the way it was supposed to be. Right. And, and we, for so long focused on Washington and, and the news cycle focus focuses on Washington and folks focus their, you know, all of the political energies that they might have on what's going on out there without realizing that what's going on at the state house affects you more than what's going out there should ever or could ever, right? Right. Uh, and so while that seems, you know, sexy for lack lack of a better word, right? And 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 sure. well, maybe not sexy, more like a dumpster fire, right? Where you turn <laughs> like, like a reality like, TV show that you just right. can't you look can't, away from at this point. That's yeah. right. You can't look away from it. Uh, <laughs> I think we're seeing more and more people pay attention to what's going on, you know, at in their state houses. And I think that's the future, right? Is that uh the states are going to uh, step up one by one and and reclaim the authority that we've abdicated to the federal government and say, no, 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 this is our constitutional authority to, whether it's protect our, you know, Second Amendment rights or 
or uh, pushback on, on places where the government's overreached uh, from the federal perspective. You know, I think you're going to see more and more of that. And that's, you know, again, that's why I'm, I am where I am. I've got no interest in going and, uh, you know, being out in that dumpster fire. This is, this is hopefully my last stop on, you know, I, I've got no future aspirations. If that's, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's so important what we do at the state level uh, to protect Hoosiers that, uh, that this is where, this is where I want to be. I I know I'm moving into a lot of different subjects that I didn't initially tell you that we were going to discuss, but I want to talk about, I don't know how ingrained you are with Twitter. I know that's how you and I connected with one another, but are you seeing some of these Twitter files that are coming out that are showing the the massive surveillance and overreach from the federal side onto citizens? So Texas and Florida have both passed legislation that says you're not allowed to silence our citizens on social media. Mm-hmm. And that's working through the uh, legislative process or the judicial process right now. But I'm curious, I wrote to uh, both senators, my uh, representative, my state representatives last year, and not one single one of them ever returned my correspondence. Called them, tried to talk to them. Federal, I taught, I sent letters to Todd Young. And I have found that the interest is very little in politicians' eyes. But in citizens' eyes, that's how we communicate with one another now. Like that is the, when you talk about the town square, I have I host an event every year now solely off of people that I met on the internet. Like it's not even people I know in real or well I know them in real life now, but and I had 45 people from all over the country come to the state of Indiana to eat food, camp out and shoot guns on my property. Yeah. So with that being said, the idea that I can't go out there, I called Kamala Harris a cunt and I was suspended for 12 hours. And sorry, I, you're, you're probably like, oh, that, that's a little bit much for me, but I am not a fan of her and I feel like I'm entitled to my opinion. But to then silence me for 12 hours, that's ridiculous. In addition to that, I had a YouTube episode that I did with a company who does blockchain voting where uh, it's called Redo Voting. And on my episode, I said, I want to stay away from all the conspiracy theory type stuff like, you know, dead people voting, Dominion, all of that stuff. I don't want to discuss that. I just want to talk about what this does for the voting process. I My video was taken down. My channel was suspended for a week. I was demonetized for four months because I violated their election integrity, whatever, policy. So I went back and I I was like, I think your algorithm maybe got this wrong. I didn't say anything bad. I said I didn't want to talk about those things. 40 seconds later, I got a response. Sorry, we've carefully reviewed your 40-minute episode, and we've decided that this is not accurate. You're still suspended. Oh, man. And so that's frustrating for me because, again, we have no recourse so from a state's perspective, what type of stuff do you see coming out of Indiana to push back against big tech? Yeah, so I think um, we started to see some bills um, uh, filed last year. I believe it was um, Representative Baird who had a bill um, uh, on on this 
particular subject, right, on, on censorship of, of Hoosiers. And, uh, and there, I think there was a fine attached to uh, these types of things. Uh, you saw a, a data privacy bill come out of the Senate last year. Uh, Senator Brown passed it, came over to the House, didn't make it through. Uh, I think, you, uh, not I think, I know that um, she's resurrecting that bill in terms of the types of data that these companies can can um, collect and store on us uh, and, and those sorts of things. So I think there's definitely an appetite uh, among the rank and file in the state house to to uh, take a look at these issues. Uh, there's always this tension, though, right, with specifically as Republicans, as conservatives of saying, well, this is a this is a private entity. This is a business. Right. right. Uh, and I think the tension comes in, as you said, where this is increasingly uh, and as you know, Elon Musk has said, right, this is increasingly become. But Jake, it's not a private business anymore. They took four point three million dollars from the federal government to silence citizens. Like that's not that's no. You're no longer private if you're accepting government. You accepted taxpayer money to silence taxpayers. You're not a private entity anymore. Right, and I I would be you know again more along the lines of of you, and I would support some of these um, efforts uh, moving forward. And so it's just going to take us, um, for some reason, The I think you're right, that that uh, a lot of citizens are clamoring for this, right? Uh, sometimes there's a lag between that and legislation. Right, uh, sure. And, and uh, I would love to be more proactive than that. But, um, but so I think you will absolutely see something uh, in the state of Indiana uh, along those lines at some point in the near future. Sure. Do you talk to me a little bit about this next legislative session? Like, talk to me about what are some of the bills that you're most excited about? What are some things that you're just staunchly opposed to and you don't see it making through? Give me like your top two on both sides. Sure, sure. So I think uh, for this legislative session, of course, it's a long session. It's a budget session. And that's what we as legislators have to be most aware of uh, as we move through. Now I can change like literally on a daily basis, right? What what's right. going what's going in, what's coming out. Sure. Ultimately, what will happen is the House will pass its version of the budget. It'll go over to the Senate. The Senate will tinker with it. They'll pass their version of the budget. Budget. It'll get hung up in conference committee, and it'll be the last thing that's decided on, right? Like sure. eventually, like the last the last day, whatever day that is, they'll say, all right, we've got a deal on the budget uh, between the House and the Senate, and uh, and this is what we're going to do. But everything's germane to the budget, right? Right. And, and so you see things that die earlier in session, whether they're, you know, they die in committee or, or uh, elsewhere, and they get resurrected in this budget, right? It becomes this Frankenstein. And so uh, we really have to be aware of what goes in there. Uh, and again, it's a you know for a for a biennium for a two year budget, it's probably going to be more like thirty eight billion dollars this 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 time wow. around. And so, uh, when you look at the the amounts of money that we're talking about for for these different projects and agencies, uh, it's a lot. And so, uh, we really have to be watchful of that. It's tough sometimes because you know if there's say of that thirty eight billion dollars, I agree with the way that thirty billion of it is spent. Do I do I vote against it or do I vote for it? Right. That's kind of what, what legislators are always, are always up against because we get an up or down vote, right? We don't get to subtract lines and then vote. Uh, We get an up or down vote. Uh, And so uh, one of the things that I'm most concerned about is the governor's public health commission spending, right? I think we opened this discussion, you and I talking about kind of the abuses of, of the 
the public health. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what that entails or how he's planning sure. on running that? Yeah, so so there's uh, at least a piece of the the governor's public health commission that I can get behind, and that is the um, they talked about the disparity in EMS service in the state, uh, and how do we uh, look at um, bridging that gap? And some of it's training and recruitment of EMS. Um, some of it's how that EM, how EMS is housed even at the federal level. It's housed under the Department of Transportation because back in the day, EMS was really just a way to get you from the scene of the trauma to the hospital as fast as possible. Well, now there's a lot of medicine that actually goes on, you know, in those miles in between, right? I'm so glad you said medicine. Let's come back to that in a minute, but keep yeah. going. Well, and so, so when you look at reimbursement rates and stuff for our for our local EMSs, our, our you know, whether it's at your township fire department or, or whatever it might be, they're not being reimbursed on the le- level of medicine, right? They're being reimbursed on the level of transportation. And so, so anyway, this this piece of the governor's public health commission that looks at uh, EMS disparity. There are there are parts of the state in Indiana where if you call nine one one, it may be thirty minutes, an hour, right? I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's it's that bad, really. And I've got a constituent who you know they had a young boy and uh, was struggling to breathe. Uh, their volunteer department showed up. They didn't have the equipment nor the expertise to take care of it, so they had to send you know another unit out of South Bend, and that took a you know twenty minutes. And you know when you're talking about breathing, right? Th- this is. Right. Seconds matter, and so so that's a piece of that that I can get behind and agree with. So if we segregate just that part and we vote on that, I would be probably in favor of it. Sure. Uh, however, there's a lot of other uh, pieces of this public health funding uh, where you know it's it's giving funding back to these uh, local health departments that uh, abuse their power for three years, right? And and there's pieces of it that think that we can spend our way into health, right? And, and I recognize that there are, uh, actually, there's a quote from Governor Holcomb, like, uh, or somebody's article said, yes, we can spend our way to healthier citizens, right? And, and, and the, the idea of that is just absurd to me. That, uh, you know, by spending more money, we're going to somehow decrease the smoking rate and obesity rates and all those sorts of things. <laughs> You know, as if it were our fault to begin with, and it's not a societal sure. thing. Right? What are the underlying factors that? So, so that's going to be a big piece that we have to watch out for. And then, you know, uh, the governor's budget. The the governor's budget for for his office is typically around three million dollars. This year, it's around six million dollars. You know, there's there's kind of so, but wait, it's, it gets better, right? The 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 doubling was not due to his staff and all that, like for the governor's operations. It's because now the uh, Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is under the governor's office, and that's like a $2.9 million budget, right? And that office was created uh, mid-budget year. It was or it was mid-budget, but it was created via grants. So this is the first time that we'll actually be voting on the funding for that office. Can we um, maybe say no to that, please? Well, that's, you know, hey, I, I wish we would, you know, if we- Like, if we have- super No. Yes. Show this to all your friends, send it to all your Congress buddies. Like that's a big no. Like yeah. we don't need to be doing that. That is a waste of money. So those are, you know, those again, again, I mean, we have to be very, very watchful of the budget. Us. Yes. <laughs> but I, I think that uh, just I'm to answer get off those, here, I'm going straight to Twitter. Yes. <laughs> bad idea. Bad idea. Okay. Keep going. I'm sorry. So second part of your question is what I'm most excited about. Um, so we've talked about, you might've heard this, this 
idea of reinventing high school thrown out there. I think the the terminology of reinventing is kind of misapplied. It's actually a continuation of what we've been doing in terms of pathways and helping kids to, right? The pendulum swung way too far in one direction yeah. and saying, you have to go to college. You've You're got to worthless get a if you don't go to college. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Right? Right? Yep. And and we don't want the pendulum to swing too far back the other way, where you know it's it's nobody it was, goes to college. <laughs> right. Yeah. Both are great, depending right. on who you are and what your interests are, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, but we have to um, make sure that kids know that and know that. Hey, I can make, you know, a six figure salary without going to a four-year university, but learning a trade or getting an, you know, sure. an associate's degree or certificates and those sorts of things. Uh, and so that's a really important piece. Uh, and then, you know, I think we're going to look at expanding school choice in some way. I don't know what that, what that a hundred percent looks like, but I'm excited to see that take shape. I would be in favor of doing something along the lines of what Arizona did recently and universal ESAs. You know, I don't know that that's on the car, you know, in the cards this this session. But uh, as a member of the education committee, that's something that I'm I'm really excited about. Sure. Uh, and uh, our bill filing deadline was this past Thursday, and so not all of those bills have populated yet on the on the uh, website. But I think you'll see us take another stab at some of these things that are being taught in the schools, right? So gender ideology, whether it's the some of the the uh, CRT type stuff. Uh, I think you'll see us take another stab at that. And again, with with two young kids of my own, uh, that's something that's important to me. There are things that, right, that we don't want to shy away from, but that I want to have the conversation with my child when it's yes. time to have that conversation. Uh, and so, so I think you'll see some of those things move, and and uh, I'm excited about those as well. I think t- to touch on that point, I think one of the the most frustrating things. So here in Floyd County, we had a library that read a book. So the books aren't aren't showcased to the. I don't know if you saw anything about this. It actually made headlines for. I a think little I remember bit. seeing it. Yeah, yeah. So the book was about a knight who was being courted by an arranged marriage with, or I'm sorry, a prince, and a knight and him teamed up to kill a dragon, and they ended up getting married. So it was a, a homosexual ending to the book. Which okay, if that's a book that you want to read to your kids, whatever, no big deal. But the fact that it was issued without talking to the parents, like they sat down and read it to children, that was the issue, right? And I think that's the issue with all of this. Of course, I want my children to understand, you know, critical race theory, if that's really what we're calling it. Like, you need to understand that people are people, you know, and then that's how I've always raised my daughter. But, you know... Those conversations come at certain times when we're talking about sex. She's ten years old. That's not a that's not a conversation she needs to be having right now. That's mm-hmm. a conversation she has when she's sixteen or or maybe older, just older, whatever. But this push where people are like, "They're all our children. They're our children. They're not. They're my kids. I birthed them. They're mine." Stop trying to to. to usurp my role as a parent and say that you know better for them. That's where I start having issues. And I I've been in pretty mama bear lately like with with oh, yeah. school boards like I'm probably on Merrick Garland's list. I'm pretty sure at this point. So I wanted to go back to something about this uh, this healthcare thing of Holcomb's. 
So in the last two months, I've had to go to the doctor twice for my kids. One was strep throat and the other was some sort of like virus or something. They they weren't sure what was going on with her. They put her on an antibiotic. They put him on an antibiotic. For him, I was in Indy traveling. I did like a computer type appointment like where I just, they looked at the blisters on his throat. They're like, we're going to call in his prescription. So that pharmacy didn't have the prescription. I'm like, okay, no big deal. We'll get it when we go back home. So we went home on Sunday. They didn't have it. Monday, they didn't have it. Finally, on Tuesday, I was able to secure penicillin for my son. And so we're getting, and that was six pharmacies that it took for me to get the drug. So we're getting to a point where we're worried about diversity and inclusion, but we're not worried about having medicine readily available in our pharmacies. Like, is Indiana doing anything from a production perspective to ensure ourselves against some of these supply chain issues? I know one of the points of trying to remove this state income tax is to help drive businesses and motivate them to be here. Mm-hmm. Is that something that Indiana's looking at as far as helping parents make sure that we we don't get hit with that stuff as hard? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and you're spot on, right? Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, a lot of this is national, even international, in, in terms of where the medicines are coming from and being shipped from. And so we've had and we've seen over the last couple of years these just complete breakdowns of our supply chain uh, for one reason or another. And and um, starting with, I mean, starting with COVID, right? I mean, you shut down a plant for a month. What do you expect is going to happen, right? Right. Um, and then you've seen things, you know, since then, you know, whether it's the baby formula thing, you know, the the plant up in on, up in Michigan that uh, that uh, had to be shut down. Uh, and so there's just been these like breaks along the way. Right. Uh, now, I will say that I think Indiana is in a really good position. We we for for our population, our size, our all of these things, we've got quite a bit of life sciences here, right? So we've got, we've got some Abbott, we've got some, of course, some Eli Lilly. And although we don't agree with everything that right, they might do, sure. say, uh, it's um, uh, in terms of medicine and the availability of medicine, it's great to have those places uh, nearby. Uh, I'll say, you know, I think that uh, some of the, um, uh, the Biden COVID tests, right? I think those were Abbott tests and they came you know, out of Indiana. And so, you know, uh, yours and my tests might've been less frozen than somebody's uh, <laughs> somewhere else in the country. But I guess maybe, okay. So I want to, I want to rephrase my question. Sure. So like if I called my pediatrician right now and I said, Hey, I really just want to stock up on a couple of antibiotics just in case, you know, so that I have that from a preparation perspective, it's just antibiotics. It's not like I'm asking for oxycodone or something. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Is there anything like that where you're giving parents the ability to kind of set themselves up so that they would have something if if something like this happened. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense and as a as a parent and as a, a husband of a of a, a fellow mama bear of yours uh you know <laughs> uh, and she's uh you know making sure that we are prepared for all of these things and and trying to uh, make sure that we could we can weather any kind of uh storm uh and uh, and so I can see that absolutely. I don't know uh, specifics right now. I do know that we're taking a lot of uh, interest in healthcare this session, right? 
there are going to be a lot of things that we, um, if you look at some of the, the bills that, that have been filed already with regard to hospitals and uh, costs and the practices that they're doing, uh, there's going to be some insurance stuff in there as well. And I think, you know, the stocking up piece would be uh, part of an insurance question as well, uh, right. which is, you know, would they pay for it? Those sorts of things. I'm an insurance agent. So that's what makes this funny. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, healthcare costs, right, in the state are just, uh, astronomical compared to even, I mean, in Illinois, I can go, you know, 90 minutes to my West and uh, get an MRI for like half the cost that I can get it here in Indiana. And why is right. that? Well, you know, part of it is z- virtually zero competition in the, in the insurance marketplace with Anthem having, I mean, a lock on, on the state. All of it. Yep. All of it. Uh, the hospitals, right. And, and this game that they play with the insurance companies and like all of these things. And, and then on the pharmacy side and the medicine side is, you're talking about you've got the PBMs in the middle, right? Uh, yeah. Doing all this dealing, and and so there's a lot of stuff to look at when it comes to that, and I think this is a is a, is an important piece of it. I think that Indiana would be so. I actually work in Kentucky. I I work in Louisville because um, I'm right here across the river. Yeah. But Kentucky introduced association healthcare plans, and that has been a game changer there. And I think Indiana could look at possibly doing something similar to that. Absolutely. But anyway, that's a whole nother topic. I have had you for almost an hour, so I will not keep you any longer. I appreciate you taking your time on your day off to sit down with me and talk. I've, I'm excited to see what Indiana brings during this, this legislative session I am more excited to see you put Governor Holcomb in check than <laughs> anything at this point. So, <laughs> but good luck on this piece. I know you guys just introduced the marijuana bill last week. As somebody who would 100% participate in recreational use if it was legal, I'm stuck with CBD right now. But as soon as you guys pull that trigger, <laughs> then That's I'm it. going to be a regular user of said substance. So yeah, I still really a appreciate it. member of society, right? Yeah. Well, and yeah. still be a, still be a good mom. Like, it's, and that's the thing. And I, it's, so my argument has always been, I don't understand why alcohol is legal. No big deal. I can go get wasted, but it's tons of calories. It's batter it, or batter, batter worse for my body. <laughs> yeah. But if I just go eat a CBD gummy, like, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> like, just let me have weed. It'll be, yeah. it's way better. You're and then you can right. tackle the obesity crisis in the process. Like people's well, livers will be better. Well, some munchies after that. Right? Oh, mm, okay. Yeah. Fair yeah, point. Watch Fair out point. for that. Just make sure you've got plenty of like carrot sticks and celery nearby. Right. Sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Jake, thank you so much for coming on with me. I'll hey, probably you. have you on again if you don't mind coming back sometime yeah. as you work through the session. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!